Thanks, Rich. Uh, we're really glad he's back as well, aren't we? Um, uh, if you've got a Bible, why don't you turn to the Old Testament, to the book of Exodus. Uh, we're going to be spending our time in Exodus 32. And um, I guess a question to start things off. What do you do when you hit seemingly difficult and challenging Bible passages that are really not easy on a 21st century ear? The ones that seem really brutal or unfair or portray God as vindictive or merciless. Well, obviously, we, we don't avoid them or pretend they're not there, but we've got to engage with them. But we can't read them in isolation. Um, you've got to try and overlay, a bit like tracing paper, what we know and trust about the character of God. And so in, in, in some way, try and understand through that lens, what really was happening in the moment. And we face such a passage today in Exodus 32 as we continue our study of the life of Moses. And I guess what we've learned uh, from previous weeks is that God consistently shows up as being kind, uh, gracious, good. It, he seems to constantly initiate and move towards his people. If you think of their miraculous escape from Egypt out of slavery, um, you think of uh, the way that he moves through Moses to initiate this great victory over Pharaoh. Think of the provision of manna in the desert, the potential of this safe and plentiful homeland that they're aiming for, and probably bigger than everything, these promises that he gives to Moses to say, I'm going to bless you as a people so that you will be a blessing to the whole earth. So time and time again from our story, we see God turns up and gives rebellious Israel love. He saves them. He delivers them. And it's, I guess it's important as we look at a chapter like this, we also recognize that Israel's story is our story too. God is gracious. He saves us from ourselves and our sin. He constantly is appealing to us to choose life instead of death. He's good, he's kind, and he wants the best for us. Amen? That's what we believe. And so we take refuge in all those things when it appears like he's not being that to us. And so we do the same when we come to a bit of scripture that we think, oh, this is tricky. So let's start with the rebellion first. Uh, verse, uh, sorry, chapter 32, verses 1 to 4. It's going to be on the screen. When the people saw Moses was so long coming down from the mountain, they gathered around Aaron and said, Come, make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't know what's happened to him. Aaron answered them, Take off the gold earrings that your wives, your sons, your daughters are wearing and bring them to me. So they all took off their earrings and brought them to Aaron. And he took what they handed him and made it into an idol cast in the shape of a calf, fashioning it with a tool. And then they said, these are your gods, Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. So God has called Moses up the mountain. And you can imagine he has a little conversation with Aaron, who's his brother, and says, look, brother, don't let them do anything stupid while I'm away. And you can imagine Aaron's like, look, bro, no sweat. I've got this covered. What could possibly go wrong? 
And they wait 40 days or so while Moses is up the mountain. And they rebel. The people have had enough. And it's interesting, in popular culture, rebellions are generally seen as good things. Obviously, you immediately think of Star Wars, or you think of a group that's waging war against a tyrant, or you think of the resistance fighting, uh, I know, in France against the Nazis. So we generally, in culture, root for those people that are heading up a rebellion. But what's really heartbreaking about this rebellion is that it's not against a tyrant, but it's against a good, gracious, loving God who is offering them life. And what makes rebellion against a holy, loving God so insane is that we're rebelling against the one thing, the one person we are actually created for. We're rebelling against the thing that our hearts actually crave, and you know we're lost without him. So what do the Israelites do? Well, they make an idol. And we use that word quite a lot, but often when we think idols, we think shrines, we think little statues. I'm old, so I think Raiders of the Lost Ark. That film must be pretty old now. I, I think of Harrison Ford playing Indiana Jones. And rarely do we think in this age, we have our own idols. But in the Bible, an idol is anything we give ourselves to over and above God himself. They're the things that we look to for deep significance and meaning. So the cultural idols that I guarantee most of us want to give ourselves to are not statues, but they're people, or they're the stuff that we have, or they're particular longings that we have in our hearts. And those things promise to serve us in some way, but ultimately we end up serving them. So it could be like really good things like your family or your career or your freedom or having a nice life or yourself in sort of wanting the best for yourself. And idols in culture and in our lives are often hiding in plain sight. So for example, I might want to buy a new car and, and, and spend hours and hours researching, like, what's the best car that I could possibly buy? I could get car magazines, go online, I buy the perfect car. And you might think, as you look at my shiny, shiny Kia Picanto, um, you might think, oh, that's Matt's idol. That's the thing that he's given himself to. And you'd be completely wrong. Because the reason I want a Kia Picanto is to impress all of you. It's somehow to find acceptance and worth and identity from having something that's so shiny and new that you all really want too. These things are the deep idols in our hearts. So as you're sat here today, how do you find your idols? Well, I've got some really great questions to ask yourself. We've put them up. So if you're just left to your own devices... You may ask, more than anything right now, I want dot, dot, dot. I need dot, dot, dot. I fear, or I fear not having dot, dot, dot. I'm seeking, I'm trusting, I'm taking refuge in. And being honest, when I did this uh, for myself, Cadbury's dairy milk fits all these, all these questions. 
Which is interesting because food is a bit of the thing that I go for for comfort. I'm taking a really good thing and joking aside, probably making it into a thing that I would want to go to before I go to God himself. So just as the gold rings and earrings transform into an idol for the Israelites, so for us, ordinary good things can become ultimate things. And listen, this is so crazy. For the Israelites, they foolishly choose to make a calf, a a baby cow, if you don't know what that is, a, a calf, a golden calf, which is actually from Egyptian culture. It's most likely the Egyptian bull god, Apis. And what's so crazy about this is that in the plagues, when the people of God were in Egypt, God had decisively defeated this God because there was a plague that killed all the livestock. So if you were in Egypt at the time, you would have seen all these dead cows and should have been convinced that Apis has no power compared to Yahweh, to God. And so two things to notice when we give ourselves rebelliously to any idol. Number one, rebellion against God makes you act like a fool. And I'm not trying to be offensive to anyone. I'm just saying rebellion against God sends you towards worshipping things that cannot provide for you in the way that you hope they will. So again, a little bit of honesty. So my predisposition is to want to please people. I need affirmation. Uh, Just ask my wife, Pip, I'm a needy person to be around. And it means that I look for significance in things that can't deliver. So when I was younger and even more needy than I am now, I know it's hard to imagine, but even more needy, it impacted the clothes that I bought, the music that I listened to, the clubs that I visited, the things that I was into, because I wanted to create this this crafted image that I thought other people would admire and like. I remember at the age of 17 spending 80 pounds on a pair of trainers. And I did the maths this morning. In today's prices, that's 270 pounds on a pair of feeler trainers. And man, they look cool. But what was I thinking? Foolishness. We spend so much time and money on stuff to try and get what only God can actually give us. Am I making some sense here? Secondly, rebellion distorts the gospel. So our first verse is, as for this fellow Moses who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. Like the Israel seemed to forget that Moses is God's appointed leader who courageously stood up to Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, their oppressor, and he spoke the words of God that led to their freedom. They know who Moses is. And they're distorting reality so that they can do what they want to do. The other distortion is they took the ways that they worship the true and living God and used those methods to worship this calf, this golden calf. Idolatry distorts who we think God is, and what we think the good news of the gospel is. So here's how it works. The motivation for turning to idols is that we believe these things can save us from our own self-defined hell. 
So we look to things that we think will save us from whatever is the most scary thing that's going on in our lives. So it might be insignificance. And so you find yourself drifting to things that will stop you landing up in the hell of insignificance. It might be loneliness. It might be that you end up giving yourself to stuff you never dreamt you would because you want to avoid that hell of loneliness. It might be disappointment. It might be the hell of failure. It might be the hell of ugliness. And you give yourself to stuff to, to, to stop yourself falling into your perceived hell of, I don't know, not looking good for other people. So what do you think about when nothing else demands your attention? Where do you spend most of your money? All the money, you know, that doesn't have to go on all the stuff that you have to spend it on. But if you have any free money, what do you, what do you fuel with your spending? What if you lost it would make you feel worthless? Or what if you gained it would make you feel complete? These are like the questions we have to ask because it'd be like the car illustration. I think we're very blind to what our actual idols are. So how does all this impact the people of Israel? Verse 7. Then the Lord said to Moses, go down because your people who you brought out of Egypt have been corrupt. Notice God disowns them. He says, Moses, they're your people. They've been quick to turn away from what I commanded them and have made themselves an idol cast in the shape of a calf. And what's going on is the revelry, the dancing, the worship has all led to sexual immorality, which is sort of sex outside of marriage. And the moral standards were very quickly forgotten. They were indulging in their desires for intimacy, and the camp was degenerating really quickly. And God sees what's going on. He sees the sin, and he is angry. Verse 9, I've seen these people, the Lord said to Moses, and they are a stiff-necked people. Now leave me alone so that my anger may burn against them and that I may destroy them. And then I'll make you into a great nation. So it seems like God's up for starting again. Now we're told that in the book of Numbers that in the camp were about 600,000 men aged 20 years or over. So people think there was probably about 2 million adults and children in this camp. And God seems to be saying, I will wipe out these two million people for breaking my commandments. And so Moses prays. He intercedes and he reminds God of the promises that he had made. Verse 11, but Moses sought the favor of the Lord his God. Lord, he said, why should your anger burn against your people whom you brought out of Egypt with great power and a mighty hand? But you know what's going on is even as Moses is praying to God, the people are getting more and more out of control. So Moses goes down and he takes the idol, the calf, the golden calf, and he grinds it up. He makes it into a powder, mixes it with water, and forces each of the Israelites to drink the mixture. But even that doesn't seem to stop them in sort of their, I guess, momentum has built towards their idolatry. Moral boundaries have been crossed, and so suddenly their idolatry has led to immorality, and so Moses has to take drastic action. Verse 25. Moses saw the people were running wild 
and that Aaron had let them get out of control and so became a laughing stock to their enemies. So he stood at the entrance of the camp and said, whoever is for the Lord, come to me. And all the Levites, all the people that would serve in the tabernacle, came and rallied to him. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. Each man shall strap a sword to his side and go back and forth through the camp from one end to the other, each killing his brother and friend and neighbor. And the Levites did as Moses commanded, and that day about 3,000 people died. I don't know about you, but it is extremely challenging, the, sh the shocking nature of this assignment given to these men having to kill their own family or their friends, 3,000 in all. And it makes for difficult reading. So, so what do we do with it? Well, to try and turn to some experts to help make some sense, one scholar, Philip Graham Riken, he says this, if we have trouble understanding this, it's because we do not understand what a wicked thing it is to worship other gods. Moreover, the whole plan of salvation was in jeopardy. Israel was called to be a holy nation through which all the nations of the world would be blessed. But the Israelites have turned away from God. And unless God did something to bring them back, he would no longer have a people to call his own. So in this horrendous episode in the story of the Israelites as they journey with God to the promised land, uh, this stands out for me as particularly challenging. Because I think what we are seeing here in Exodus is the wages of sin is death. That's what we're seeing. You see, Israel have made this flood covenant, like the most, the, the best, the most significant promise they could make to God, where they said, we would obey your commands. We're going to look at the Ten Commandments next week. And the punishment on the guilty, which seems so harsh to us, was just. Because in the big picture, the loss of 3,000 saves the rest of the 2 million. God hates sin and idolatry. He hates it. He's not indifferent. And if he was indifferent to that sort of sin, he is not good. God hates sin. And God, I guess, sees sin in our hearts, in their hearts, like a rotten tree. Because so, the effects of sin, when we turn our backs on God's best for us, when we selfishly do our own stuff, live for ourselves, put ourselves as God or other things, then it destroys you, actually, from the inside. Sin corrupts not just you, but generations along bloodlines. Giving ourselves over to rebellion against God means that, effectively, we're joining the side of Satan, the devil, and setting ourselves to destroy all that is beautiful and right and good in God's creation. Sin, if you like, rots out our souls and then rots out the souls of our families. And it may look okay from the outside, but inside it is destroying you. And we worship a God who hates that sort of sin. He wouldn't be the God we want to worship if he just tolerated it if he was just okay with it, if he wasn't that bothered by it. And it's interesting when people talk about the wrath of God, I think they talk about it wrongly. 
See, the wrath of God, the righteous anger of God, it's not lightning bolts. It's not tsunamis. Romans 1 says God just turns you over to chase the things that you want to chase and shouldn't be chasing. So if you're chasing that person because that's your idol, then God just says you can have them. If you're chasing popularity, you can have that. If you're chasing that dream for yourself, life goals, you can have those things if you're wanting to put them before me. See, the wrath of God is just letting you chase the things you want to chase, but will end up with you being hollowed out from the inside and eventually collapsing. And this is so challenging because the truth that affected the Israelites is our truth too. The price for sin is still death. Rebellion against God still results in separation from him and an ultimate judgment, which is spiritual death. We need a savior, just like the Israelites needed a savior. And Moses, he realizes he needs to step into this moment. Verse 30. The next day, Moses said to the people, you have committed a great sin. But now I will go up to the Lord Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. Everyone say atonement. Atonement. So Moses went back to the Lord and said, Oh, what a great sin these people have committed. They have made themselves gods of gold. But now, please forgive their sin. And if not, then blot me out of the book you have written. If you don't come to church very often, that word atonement is sometimes a bit confusing. It means to pay a ransom for. So Moses goes up and tries to do what Moses is actually unable to do. He tries to pray for the sins of Israel. He goes up and pleads with God. He says, I want to make atonement. Please don't blot out the names of your people. Remember the promise you made to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob. Hold fast your anger. And God relents. Because Moses is a picture of one that is still to come. Moses cannot atone for the sins of Israel because he himself is a sinner. Moses is a picture of a greater Moses who is to come, Jesus Christ. And when Jesus comes, he's able to make atonement for our sin. What Moses tries to do for Israel in their rebellion, Jesus does for every single one of us. All of your sin, and I'll take the amens, this is the good news. All of your sin, past, present, future, is fully and, and freely taken care of at the cross of Christ. His atoning work on the cross, his bloodshed was so profound, it didn't just burst into the future and forgive all of our sin today, but it moved backwards through time and picked up the sins of the people in the past, including Moses. You may have remembered in the news a while back, 2013, there was a deadly terrorist attack in Nairobi, in Kenya. Four gunmen uh, took on a shopping mall, and sadly, 67 people died, 200 people injured. A, a, a horrible disaster, but this story emerged from what happened inside the mall. A lady had gone to have a coffee with a friend, and when the shooting started, she sort of dived under a table for cover. 
And as the terrorists were working their way around the mall, shooting anyone that was alive, the person lying next to her, their phone went off. And so as it was ringing, she was getting more and more panicked that the terrorists would come. And so she reached under the body of the man and found that he was bleeding profusely, unable to turn off the phone himself. And as she reached under him, um, sort of a, a huge pool of blood uh, suddenly was created. She, in absolute terror, took the blood of this dying man and plastered herself in his blood. And she lay sort of as still as she could on the ground, covered in this blood. And she survived the attack. The terrorists thought that she was dead. And she went on to say to interviewers, I want to know the man's name whose blood saved me. And for, for Christians, we know the name of the man who dies and whose blood covers our sin. When I think of the stuff that I've done, so I, when I think back to teenage years, early 20s particularly, all the stuff that I've done, like the people that I hurt, the disgusting stuff that I gave myself to, when I think of just the stuff that's embarrassing and shameful, that mess me up, mess the people up around me, I have to picture Jesus on the cross. As they drove the nails through his hands and feet, as he screams in agony on the cross, as he pushes up against the nails to take a breath in, as he collapses back down and then eventually suffocates, what's happening in that moment is all my shame and my guilt for my sin is absorbed by Jesus Christ. In those moments on the cross, he is atoning for my sin. And I can never pay that back. I actually don't owe him for that. He pays for it fully. His blood saves me. Thank you, Walter. And I know this is heavy. But let me finish by asking you this. We know that God is kind. We know that God is gracious. We know that he is good. And we know, if we are honest, just like the people of Israel, that we have rebelled against this goodness. We have chosen idolatry. We have chosen slavery. We have chosen death over freedom and life. And it doesn't always feel like that because we justify, we blame others, we sort of make it okay to ourselves because we can't quite handle it. But God, even in his wrath, made a way for those who believe in the atoning work of Jesus to be spiritually resurrected and ultimately physically resurrected in eternity with him forever. And that's our story. So I'm not going to hold back here. I've got some really important questions to ask you. Where are you in this story? Like, seriously, are you worshipping the equivalent of a baby cow somewhere in your life? Like, is that you? Do you believe in Jesus' atoning work for your sin? Like, you've got to reach out and have his blood cover your own body. You've got to believe in what Jesus does for it. It's no good Jesus dying and you saying, oh, that's nice. Or thanks. There's an active trust in what he does for you. Have you 
made that commitment yet? Are you going to keep worshipping poor substitutes for God or reject them with the ferocity that God shows in this passage? Because that's why that passage is there. To show us God's hatred for sin. Are we going to align ourselves to the heart of God? And will you be honest with your divided hearts and humbly today choose to put God first? Do you want to bow your heads? Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we are aware of the seriousness of passages like this and though there is still much we don't understand and much is a mystery we do hear your both your warning and your encouragement to us this morning i pray lord just for some holy ground today for us to do business with you to sort out those little idols and today to decide that they no longer are going to take your place, God, in my life. I pray that you'd speak to any guilt and shame in the room that we often carry with us because of messy pasts and messy, messy presence. We pray that the blood of Jesus would speak a better word this morning, that we would know that it is all dealt with at the cross. And God, we pray, give us an undivided heart that we might fear your name.